if we're already using our resources to do investment, why not do investment in areas that will both be financially productive and solve problems? It's both more interesting. It's more productive. We have a short time on this planet. <laughs> why not use as much of that productively as possible? And again, I'd seen that folks who just invested well could do quite well if they invested with high standards and paid attention to the social environmental impacts of their investments. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Ian Simmons, who, with his wife, Liesl Pritzker Simmons, founded and run the Blue Haven Initiative. Blue Haven is a large family fund that concentrates on impact investing in the U.S., Europe, and Sub-Saharan Africa. I was particularly interested in their involvement in the civic area in the United States, where they fund organizations like Higher Ground Labs and Issue One. Founders of both of those groups have been on this show. I was interested to learn that he had helped with the establishment of Act Blue as well. Ian is also the president of the Foundation for Civic Leadership, which incubates projects to reduce barriers to civic participation. Ian and I had a good conversation about how he got into this field, what motivates him, and how he goes about doing what he does. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ian Simmons of the Blue Haven Initiative. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ian, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Ian Simmons. I am the principal and co-founder of Blue Haven Initiative, which is a family investment firm that invests around the world for profit and with purpose to advance social environmental progress for ourselves and future generations. I'm also president of Foundation for Civic Leadership, which incubates projects to remove barriers to civic participation. We take a holistic view of problem solving, of investing capital for profit, but also catalytic capital at low market rates, as well as philanthropic capital, and to ensure that we're looking at all different ways of solving problems. And that includes also political capital, the direct financial support for candidates, as well as investing in companies that improve political participation. And I think a really good fit for what I'm interested in, what I hope my audience is. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, college town. What kind of family? My family is actually from Illinois in Chicago. We moved back to Chicago when I was a teenager. So Chicago is my other hometown. And my parents were uh, academics, but applied academics. So my dad helped fight poverty uh, around the world 
as a professor, but also working with the World Bank on poverty alleviation projects and advancing employee ownership, new forms of corporate ownership. And my mother was a college president and became the president of the MacArthur Foundation. So as a, as a teenager, I got to meet MacArthur fellows in the United States who are doing amazing work and meet with grantees around the world. That's amazing. What a privileged way to learn. It was, it was really cool because it was always an inspiration to meet people who often had less access to resources that, that I had who were doing amazing things and taking much bigger risks. So it was definitely inspiration that if you've got a short time on the planet, why not take a risk and try to do as much as you can to create positive change? What college did your mother run? She ran Hampshire College. Oh, okay. Uh, which is fallen on hard times of late. Fallen on time more recently, but yeah. she, was, she yeah. was there uh, sort of 77 to 89. And it was a great place to be because there was a big belief in interdisciplinary problem solving and like understanding problems, not from a disciplinary silo, but from how to bring people together to figure stuff out. And that's what I grew up believing education should be about is learning by doing and not taking precedent as law. So it was pretty exciting to be at a very entrepreneurial environment. Hampshire actually had a, a lot of entrepreneurs come out of it. And I got to meet many of them growing up as a kid. Was there a MacArthur genius that stuck in your head particularly? <laughs> Honestly, I think some of the more interesting ones were the ones like, uh, you know, Roger Payne, who studied whales and the what it took to go so deep into a topic, you do it for your lifetime. And when you do that, interesting stuff comes out often. So um, that, that can have implications for other fields. It's like Darwin writing a whole book on worms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I found that to be very productive, actually. It's, it just in the last 20 years or so, really consistently asking, you know, what could it really mean to engage young people better in democracy? And how do we, how could we go about doing that? And instead of saying there's any one right answer by asking the question, we've come up with a bunch of different ways of engaging by creating better fundraising platforms, by creating better ways of holding colleges accountable to improve student voting, um, by investing in, in civic tech. And so by relentlessly going after this question, it's been, it's been really, really a productive enterprise. I saw you, uh, went to Harvard undergrad. What'd you study there? I studied uh, social studies, which is uh, also interdisciplinary department. So we went deep into you know economics and political theory. Uh, I took a special look at uh, higher education and history and structure of higher education, um, and even went into the political psychology of university professors. It was a fun topic because I basically chose a topic that professors, in theory, shouldn't be able to grade because I was writing about them. <laughs> what did you conclude? I was very interested in professors who wrote about democracy for a public audience and how much their ideas about democracy actually influenced their own classroom practice. Because their classroom was the, the sphere they had the most control over, uh, the, the cultural sphere they had most control over. And did that inspire them to, to actually teach differently? And it was interesting how little space for reflection there was. There were many professors who did innovate in their classroom, partly inspired by their ideas about democracy and teaching for democracy and had success in creating better ways of doing it. Michael Sandel, Lonnie Guineer, uh, uh, among the examples that I interviewed, but at Cornell West, but, but many of them also reflected how 
he didn't have enough space to bear down on and get and get really reflective on what it could really mean to educate for democracy. So even as they were the foremost practitioners of it in many ways. This is a family initiative and you're married to Liesl, is that how you say Pritzker? Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you meet her? Well, we met in part because of our mutual interest in, in global philanthropy and impact investing. So I was already involved in philanthropic projects in different countries in the United States and was already doing impact investing work. That's how we first met was uh, at a conference. (laughs) (laughs) Very romantic. (laughs) It really was a values alignment question. Like we understood how much that if we were serious about improving the world for future generations, it also meant taking a look at all of what we were doing, how we were investing, how we were doing philanthropy, how we were using our time, how we were developing our talents. Uh, and it could be a joyful, productive journey to go deep with that. So I think the idea that that change doesn't start or stop with investing or start or stop with philanthropy or start or stop with politics was very appealing to us. And that's made for a, a wide ranging and productive journey together. You're in the, in the area called impact investing. What is that and what led you to it? Impact investing is really just a good investing, investing with higher standards. My family had the interesting experience of being the son of uh, the first college president in the country to divest their college's endowment holdings from apartheid stock. And there were great warnings that the endowment wouldn't do very well after that. And in fact, the endowment did just fine, if not better. So I, I grew up knowing that you could raise the standards by which you invested and still do well. And, and in my father's work, I saw the examples of enterprises that were structured differently. So the employees reaped more of their productivity because they were employee-owned companies and knew there were different ways of structuring investments to, to create more value all around for all stakeholders. So I saw example after example in the renewable energy space growing up as well of companies that were creating positive change. So I was interested in why not do more of that? You know, why not if, if we're already using our resources to do investment. Why not do investment in areas that will both be financially productive and solve problems? It's both more interesting. It's more productive. We have a short time on this planet. (laughs) Why not use as much of that productively as possible? And again, I'd seen that, that folks who just invested well could do quite well if they invested with high standards and paid attention to the social environmental impacts of their investments. So that was my orientation in starting to both try to apply negative screens to investments, but also proactively invest in companies that were solutions oriented. And Liesl separately also got a very interested in impact investing. So when we discovered we were both interested in it, it seemed like a logical thing to center our family investment work around. What's the founding story for the Blue Haven Initiative as you named it? Like what happened there? How did you put that together? Uh, for us, Liesl has a family office and I had inheritance and investment work I was doing. So we decided to create the family office centered on impact investing and ask the question, you know, what could it mean to, for a family to, to try to have as much positive impact in the world as possible over time? And part of the, the, the focus of that was um, looking at really what resources we're doing. So the first thing was like, hey, say, let's look. And each of us had done this separately, but we took a second look together. Like, what are the resources actually doing? and analyze, you know, stock holdings and bond portfolios and 
private equity and and came up with examples of companies that were actually being very aggressive at solving amazing problems and other ones that were involved in behavior we thought was abhorrent and worth divesting from. And others where there was sort of a, a need to look more closely. We didn't feel we had enough information and we felt a, a more a proactive engagement stance would be helpful. But anyway, that sort of began the inquiry of like, hey, you know, we should pay more attention to this. And we know there's enough great companies around the world to invest in. Why not go find them and, and partner with them to create more change? So, you know, we looked at renewable energy companies and affordable housing companies and fintech companies that were serving uh, lower income people in a way that was cheaper than their alternatives and developed a venture portfolio in sub-Saharan Africa to partner with companies there at tackling problems um, of energy and, and entrepreneurial access to markets. Carefully went through over the years to create a portfolio where across every asset class, we're trying to invest with high standards and meet or exceed market rates of return. And is that money all yours? And what scale are we talking about? The money sort of family money, Elizal had a, a very significant inheritance and I had a larger than usual inheritance. And so the scale is uh, significant enough that we have a professional team and many advisors and are able to launch funds and be first investors in companies and do follow on rounds. And we have quite a, quite a bit of access to, to, to making change with the resources. So we're, we're very lucky on that front. Our, our fund and this, this is public information. I think like our fund in sub-Saharan Africa is a $50 million venture fund. On your website, one of the fund areas is in civics. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So this is an area where we mostly have done, we've done some, some, sheer commercial rate investing, but a lot of it's been what we call more catalytic capital. So coming from a personal or philanthropic bucket where we may not expect market rates of return, but the impact is so significant, potentially it's worth taking more risks. And in there we invest in higher ground labs, which has invested in turn in companies like uh, Mobilize and Avalanche uh, and Ballot Ready that change the game of what's possible in civic engagement, especially progressive civic engagement. We've also done direct grant support for new media ventures, which does granting and investing in nonprofits as well as companies to accelerate uh, change as well. So we've gone deep in that space. I mean, I had an interesting experience of, again, starting with this question of how do we engage more young people in democracy and jumped up on a bus to New Hampshire to do GeoTV work in 2002 and uh, met another guy on that bus named Ben Ron. And together we started talking about like, how could, you know, how could we use this internet thing to better engage people uh, in politics? You know, maybe we could figure out how to organize money better so we could all do a barbecue and uh, recruit people to do GeoTV work and raise more money for buses and organize volunteer time better. And so thinking about how yeah. to use social media to, to create, to, you know, especially uh, social media and the internet to make it much easier to participate and perhaps level the playing field for the, the small donor or the, the everyday volunteer. Yeah. And that became act blue, the, the power of just asking the question and taking the risk and continuing a conversation. I've seen that bear so much fruit. So when, and when HGL came along, when new media ventures came along, I was really excited because we didn't have anything like that to partner with to incubate Act Blue. I mean, 
we just had to kind of figure it out. And, you know, our first step was just creating another conference call to talk about what would be possible. And then the next step was recruiting some interns and, and Ben did a terrific job recruiting Matt and, and, and building the site. So we really are, are very lucky about how that, that worked out, but and recognize you had experienced the importance of uh, these these incubating institutions that can accelerate the development of of needed civic tech. We were hoping in the beginning to also do volunteers, and then Mobilize uh, America came along. You know, still 15 years later, but they were basically trying to do a lot of what we had hoped to do, and ended up a smart decision to to focus on the. A fundraising platform that I give uh, uh, Ben and Matt a lot of credit for emphasizing. That's so interesting. I didn't know you were involved in ActBlue, and I've my business was uh, alongside and cooperative with ActBlue, and sometimes competitive with ActBlue. <laughs> yeah, uh, and but they've done a, an amazing job uh, over the years, and it's cool to hear that you were part of that. I've also paid a lot of attention to new media ventures and higher ground and talked to a lot of the founders that they've been supporting. I'm curious from your perspective, how we're doing in that arena right now. I mean, it is dramatically different with higher ground working away, but the amounts of dollars are still fairly modest. And I think the market is still, you know, it's evolving, but it's not mature. And uh, it's not clear we're, we're ahead, although I think we, we may be ahead in entrepreneurship. How do you see it? I see enormous progress has been made, but we're really at the 20-yard line. So we always have to think we're at the 20-yard line, even if we get further down the field. Well, the, the field keeps moving, so you're, moving. there's no way to get to the end. Right? Exactly. The field keeps changing, and the other team keeps innovating. So you really have to, to, to be thinking three or four steps ahead and be humble about what's been accomplished because success is not determined by how far you've come, but how far you've come relative to the other side in innovation. And you don't know really how all that works out until the rubber hits the road in an election cycle. I mean, arguably one of the great things yet to come is figuring out how to measure the effectiveness of money spent. Democrats raising money was not the problem this cycle. We do now have ActBlue and, and other tools. So when Joe Biden needed to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, he did not have a great small donor base. He had a start, but he was able to, to um, partner with other politicians and, and through sites like ActBlue and others uh, generate huge fundraising totals. So fundraising wasn't the issue for Joe Biden. It wasn't the issue for most congressional Democrats. It's critical, but it wasn't the major issue. Um, how the money was spent, there, there probably could have been some more effective ways of spending the money and and when it's raised and how we raise money sooner so it can be spent on things that like training organizers and building political infrastructure in, in a specific location or really listening closely to and testing narratives um, long before the last minute thing that often happens in a political campaign where you have three months to figure out a narrative and test it. How do you build a longer lasting brand that will be resilient cycle to cycle? These are some of the challenges and uh, ahead and I, I think there's a, a lot of room to happen to in innovation to, to improve how, how campaigns spend money. And there's a lot of room for entrepreneurs to develop better ways to measure how that's money spent and advise how to improve that. You know, I've talked to 
some of the folks who fund or represent funders in that space. And one thing that concerned me a little is, you know, there was a whole lot of resources that were mobilized against Trump. And Trump's not gone, but there might be a little bit of relaxing potentially post the Biden win. Will you continue to re-up with places like Higher Ground? Or do you see your peers doing that as well? I think many people saw this presidential election as a win, an exciting win, but a win with a warning. You know, it was 7 million votes over Trump is terrific. And they did get a historically high number of votes. And the electoral vote was determined by a margin of 46 to 65,000 votes, depending how you count it. Crazy. Yeah. So there is a lot of work to do. And I think the success of companies like Mobilize, the success of, um, and, and others really show that innovation matters and is possible. We need to keep doing it. But I, I do think it's a time to double down and not just do a little bit more for this uh, coming cycle. We, we need to keep understanding that, you know, until we're closer to 100% voter participation, until we have a policy apparatus that really reflects the majority of voters' preferences and until we're respecting minority rights um, and protecting the lives of minorities in this country fully, we, we aren't where we need to be. And there's going to be more civic tech innovation needed and better political organizing needed. But both are needed to win the future. It can't just be a innovative companies. It really also has to be a strengthening political parties in a way that has, has them be stronger and more accountable to everyday people. So these are some of the other questions, you know, we look at because we try to look comprehensively across civics. So take something like a, uh, a wealth tax, which already has majority support across the country. It's actually a moderate position. Majority Republicans support it. And, you know, how long will it be before, you know, Bezos and Zuckerberg or even, even you know, me and Liesl end up paying a wealth tax? You know, that's an interesting question for civic tech. Like, how do you mobilize constituencies across issues and make good use of civic tech to ensure that politicians are more accountable to voters and the economy's working for everybody uh, and we have the best solutions in place? So I think we'll see a lot more of that. You know, maybe not, not just new companies starting, but existing NGOs understanding the power of existing civic tech to mobilize people to, to engage in winning policy solutions faster. I'd say one, one example of, a, of an NGO that's doing a pretty good job of this is Data for Progress because they've harnessed the power of doing polling at somewhat cheaper levels, combined that with political strategy work and really driven a lot of the narrative to help accelerate the, the prominence of progressive policy solutions. You know, they just did this wealth tax polling recently that showed in battleground states even in Mississippi, the wealth tax is popular two to one, you know? So what's so great about that, their, their, in, their insight and their responsiveness is that they can now drive a conversation of how the wealth tax is actually a centrist policy proposal. And so this, this combination of using technology solutions to drive public conversation in a way that ensures politicians are serving democracy better is the way to, to think about this. Because if you just think about what's the new flashy thing and how to make money with it, as opposed to how do we solve a more important problem and then how can tech serve that? That, that I think gets really interesting. 
I'm for a wealth tax. And it sounds like you two are as well. And and some other prominent wealthy people. A wealth tax of like two cents above 50 million, we think could make a lot of sense. And not starting too low a level. You know, it should be taxing people at $250,000. You know, it should be people with un, uh, undoubtedly are pretty much you know, set for life and, uh, and, and their capital would be very well used, at least a small portion of it to help strengthen America for future generations. One of the things about polling issues like that, like, and data for progress does this on, on many fronts is that it's hard to test how that will hold up those majorities when the wealthy people who don't want attacks like that go after it hard. And, there are plenty of successful campaigns against taxation in this country. Do you think there is a strategy that gets such a tax through the Congress and signed by the president? Well, first you need McConnell not to be the majority leader. <laughs> so, but you need a strategy behind any, any policy to be successful. So, but again, before you get a strategy, it's helpful to, be able to test the waters quickly um, by pulling popular opinion, by getting a sense of what volunteers might be interested, by being able to quickly survey social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, for conversation. And because of these innovations in civic tech, we're actually able to much more quickly develop a credible case for progressive policy that's already in the majority of this country. So I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I'm encouraging that there are a lot of a lot more ingredients on the table than there were 20 years ago to speed up the change at which the rate at which we make change. Now, the billionaires who are opposed to majority rule or proposed solutions that work for everyone, if they have to pay a little bit more, you know, are often very, very smart about this and will build very in-depth in-state infrastructure year after year. Here I'm thinking of the Koch brothers and have been very successful at, at delaying the arrival of, of progressive policy that's already in the majority. So it takes a lot of work. And uh, part of what's, what's critical is that to, to accelerate needed work is to have a kind of a doubling down mentality of not saying, hey, in an election, oh, you know, we, we won this. We actually have to think, hey, look how close this was. And so what more can we do? Because the stakes are too high. So, so part of the work where I get engaged this is, is checking in with peers of like, you know, hey, what more can we do in this moment? Not just like, hey, that was great. We helped win the election. So it's exactly in the next three months of time, right after the election, that's the most important for setting up this next round of infrastructure, for higher ground labs to raise the funds they need to invest in the next round of companies. So they have enough time to test what they need to test in Virginia so we can roll that over to a midterm election and roll that over to a presidential. You know, the next cycle starts now, not in September of, of 2022 or, or 2024. If there's an entrepreneur that's doing something in the civic space, are they better off going to a new media ventures or a higher ground labs or do they ever go directly to you or is that not how you prefer it? Um, both can work. I, I do get people coming to me directly, but one of the great features of Higher Ground Labs and New Media Ventures is they're pretty great vetting tools. So I heavily rely upon them uh, at this point. I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for for folks with a great idea and a clear view of the landscape, but the folks at Higher Ground Labs do do too. So and and they focus on this uh, day in day out. So I'm 
that's one of the great virtues of, of these, of these intermediaries. In some of the investing community, there's a skepticism that you can do as well investing for impact as you would otherwise. You were pretty confident that, you know, your whole life you've seen that it is the case, but what, what's the evidence? Generation investment management is a ESG public equity manager that has been a, a top 1% public equity performer globally. They, they achieve those results through an investment discipline that's informed with a deep view of long-term sustainability risks of companies. And so we, we know that some of the top performing managers put ESG concerns at their core and in fact, as their competitive edge. So, uh, you know, we don't buy that, uh, that if you start thinking with an impact investing lens, you're going to do worse. It's really what ultimately determines whether you do better or worse is how good you are as an investor. The advantage of the impact investing is you're forcing yourself to look at longer term considerations and that other information that you get by looking at long term climate risks attached to a company or how their company looks at diversity in hiring. These are actually things that do correlate over the longer term with better performance. And by forcing ourselves and managers we work with to just get more information about the risks inherent in a company and its potential for long-term growth and sustainability, we do better. I've gotten the sense that some of the regulatory environment around impact investing has changed under Trump, what do you look for from the Biden administration? Well, I was encouraged by the pick of, of Gina McCarthy because she's serious about climate. You know, we know Biden's serious about climate. The rubber will also hit the road in their SEC pick uh, for SEC chair because investors deserve to know about the climate risks inherent in that companies are engaged with, you know, companies should be reporting on their their exposure to climate change and to investors so we can make better decisions. And the SEC can in ensure that more companies are doing their job to report to investors their risks. You know, climate risk is a material risk and they should be reporting that to, to their investors. So the SEC chair is important there. They can also do a, a better job um, requiring companies to disclose their political contributions. So you know, for us as an investor, it's very material what a company's political risk is. And you can tell that by how much they're investing and in trying to influence politics. So, but if a company is not disclosing to investors how it's spending its political money, you don't really have insight into how much management fears political regulation or, or how much their business model they think actually depends upon electing certain people to office. I and mean, that's a very material risk. And so out of the Biden administration, we really just would request a a deep view of enabling markets that provide adequate information to investors. It's, it's not a radical idea. It's just providing the right information would be key from the perspective of SEC or uh, another area where we're really interested is continuing to double down on a long-term view of success in this country. Too many major industries have been forced to, or have taken a short-term orientation to success because of quarterly reporting, because of the way CEO pay works. And as a result, you know, don't do enough to advocate for R&D investment, infrastructure investment, education investment, or don't do enough to manage their company for long-term sustainability. Too much of private equity is extractive. There are private equity managers who try not to be extractive, but too much of private equity is extractive. 
So for example, around the rules governing pension funds, it would be great if pension funds could be encouraged once again, as they were under the Obama administration, to take a, a long-term view that they could take into account the interests of their beneficiaries in the investments they chose. I mean, pension funds shouldn't invest in things that kill their beneficiaries, right? <laughs> you shouldn't be able to invest in companies that that produce pollutants that are, are, are more likely to reduce the life expectancy of the beneficiaries of pension funds. So if the pension funds want to invest with higher standards, they definitely should be not only allowed to, but they should be encouraged and even required to. That makes sense. Since you've been running Blue Haven Initiative, what surprised you the most? It attracts the best people, we think, like because it attracts people who want to succeed professionally and do those in alignment with their deepest values. It's maybe not a surprise, but it's been gratifying to see that recruitment's not the issue, talent's not the issue in this space, um, and how much talent's interested in working for companies and working for investment organizations, working for political organizations that are really are trying to lean in on ensuring that future generations <laughs> are better off than the current one. So that's been pretty exciting. To what degree do you, when you're investing, are you investing along with other organizations? How do you partner in this space and with whom? We're very interested in aligned interests. So if we're, if we're going on the fully for-profit side of things, trying to ensure we're earning a competitive return, we sometimes actually will be uh, careful before we go in with a foundation as a co-investor because they may not they may have a different view of risk than we might around the investment and may be interested in, in different outcomes or holding the entrepreneur to different standards or maybe overpricing the company because they're, they're interested in getting out the money out the door. Uh, and that overpricing the company can lead to the entrepreneurs making worse decisions in terms of their business plan. We definitely are when we do direct investments are very interested in who our co-investors are and as much as possible, try to, to ensure there's aligned interests. So that's, that's what's one piece we pay attention to. And it's a little surprising that sometimes a, a foundation you think that would write a big check is a, is a good partner. Well, sometimes it's not always the right partner. Who've been great partners for you. There are other family offices that uh, have been great partners because they, um, have a long-term interest as well. I mean, we're investing for our family and for future generations of our family and in other families that have that long-term view that we know they're going to be around in five and 10 and 20 years. Those often could be, can be great partners as co-investors. They're investing from a place starting with their values, but with professional discipline. One of the things you mentioned that you're doing is something called Foundation for Civic Leadership. What is that? That's a nonprofit initiative that I co-founded to really help remove barriers to engaging the next generation. So if we're interested in accelerating educating for democracy, and we need more education for democracy than ever before, <laughs> how do we go about doing that? At FCL, we, we took a look at what some of those key barriers were. And one was, for example, higher education. You know, why don't colleges and universities emphasize teaching democracy more? How would you go about measuring where they did a good job at that? Well, one basic measure would be voting. Are they actually increasing the rate at which their students vote? If a school goes to Northwestern University, are they voting more often than students who go to other schools? So basically I figured out a way to measure that and partnered with Tufts University. And now 10 years later, 
we have something called NSOLVE, which is a national study of, of learning, voting, and engagement, which measures the voting rates on over 1,100 campuses across the country. It's a nonpartisan project, and it just partners with the campus to figure out how many of their students are registered to vote and how many vote. And we've learned some amazing success stories for that. Like Northwestern actually has figured out a way to achieve a 91% student voter registration rate in 2016. Like we'd never seen registrations that rate that high. So then we, we went to them and figured out what they were doing and they were just taking the time to ask every student to register to vote, but doing it in a high quality in-person way as part of orientation. And they had forms from all 50 States right there. So if a student said, you know, I'm from Ohio and I'd like to register to vote in Ohio. They had the Ohio form and they helped the student fill it out and send it in. And they dramatically increased their registration rate. And then other schools, you know, we help, we help set up programs. So a lot of schools learn about how to do this. And uh, another school hit a 95% registration rate after they listened to Northwestern did. So that's about what we do is like ask a big question, figure out some points of leverage, figure out how to use evidence and research to drive improvement and then try to scale that. So uh, the All-in-Campus Democracy Challenge, which we also uh, initiated and is housed at Civic Nation, works with campuses to, to challenge them to create plans to improve civic learning and voting on their campus. And then the campus that do the best job, that improve voting the most or have the highest voting rates, they get awards. And so make it kind of fun. There's even now competitions now. The Big Ten is now competing in student voting. And the Big Ten college presidents all signed off on it and they make it a school spirit thing. And this is what the renewal of a democracy has to be about. It's about trying to include everyone. It's about trying to ensure participating democracy itself is a nonpartisan thing. And then leave the political parties to fight, fight it out about how people should vote. But whether we should vote or not should not be a partisan issue. That's something we need to have a, develop a culture of encouraging everyone to participate. But that's kind of what we do is try to remove barriers to, okay, here's a system problem. Here's an ecosystem challenge. What would be sort of the highest leverage way to try to unlock the energy of more local leaders around the country to solve that problem? So by allowing colleges to measure their own voting rate, we unlock the potential of students and faculty and college presidents to like an alumni to care about where their school stood and themselves figure out ways to get better. It seems like there's numerous institutions outside of the world of colleges that could be doing the same things. Is that going on? Exactly. Well, companies could do a lot more. Uh, the Civic Alliance, which we helped with, uh, is trying to win and has successfully won more commitments from companies to get involved in encouraging full, a culture of, of full civic participation. You know, we believe this is a key, key core commitment for the next 250 years of American democracy is to commit to the participation of all Americans in America. And the Civic Alliance is engaging more companies in trying to, to win those commitments and make it easier for employees to vote and engage with customers about voting. Snapchat has done an amazing job of, of engaging young people in voter registration, but also cities. So every city already has a measurable voting rate. And so what's really interesting about the cities project is many cities see themselves not, not as running elections because their county does that. But a mayor is a great convener. You know, they can convene the businesses in their city and the schools in their city and city agencies in a compliant way to try to make it a matter of pride of how many people in, say, you know, in uh, Milwaukee show up to vote. So why not make it a matter of pride in Milwaukee or in Tennessee? You know, in Tennessee, the Republican and Democratic mayors who take pride in encouraging more of their citizens to vote and, and not according to what neighborhood they're in that's convenient for the reelection, but to establish a culture of, hey, in this city, 
we think we all count. And as a mayor, I want to make sure everyone feels they count. So let's work together to reduce barriers to people showing up to participate. So there's a lot more that could be done around the country. Whatever city you're in, you know, whatever town you're in, you know, you could work with your town to create a plan to, hey, you know, it's kind of, let, let's try to create a culture of everyone participating. Now, it's kind of like pedestrian safety. You know, there's a whole thing called Vision Zero, which is the, the ambition that every city should have no pedestrian fatalities. But by establishing that vision, it enables cities to relentlessly get better. And by establishing a Vision 100 for voter participation, cities can relentlessly get better at, at voter participation and increasingly create a culture where the city is accountable to, to more of its voters and the voters are in turn in, ensuring that the local, state and, and national representatives are hearing from more of us. I think President Trump posed a lot of unique challenges to our democracy. You don't have to really enumerate them to know them. Has having him in office and the the fight that he made post-election and all of the questions of disinformation and, and many of the things that that we've faced for the last five years or so, has that made you look at what you're going to do post-2020 in a new way? Uh, in some ways, not too much, because we view Trump as a symptom of a problem, not as the problem itself. Our efforts around youth voter work to remove barriers for youth voter participation started, you know, really 20 years ago, and Trump put a finer point on it. But this idea that we should discourage people from showing up and participating in this country because we disagree with who they are and what they believe has been around as long as this country has. So we have these competing narratives in America. Let's have an America of liberty and justice for all, or let's have an America for the few of us who try to get as many toys as possible and keep everybody else out. So that fight is a timeless fight. Our view even 20, 30 years ago was like, we weren't doing well enough in that fight for including everyone in democracy. And we needed to, to strengthen that. I, I do remember even in the you know 2000 election, which was really close, and, and Gore actually won that election if they'd done a, if they actually counted the votes across Florida. Ironically, that there was a strategic error in that, and the, the Democrat side how that was done. But the, the bigger picture is there were very strong efforts at voter discouragement back then that that through that election, and all the way up through the present through the present day. So these are not new things; these are pre-Trump efforts to discourage Americans from voting that have been going on for decades and, in fact, centuries. And we need to create a culture where we really are including all Americans in America. Uh, that fight is not, not even close to fully won yet. So uh, complacency is what led to Trump. Engagements is what's going to create the foundation for an America that's truly for all Americans and not just uh, those who happen to have the most power at the time. I like the idea of sort of the vision 100 for participation. How would you characterize the bigger vision for Blue Haven and Foundation for Civic Leadership? What do you want to leave as your legacy in this area? The individuals and families that, for whatever reason, have unusual resources should also not be free from the idea that what we do counts and that we should be looking across all of our resources to align them with what would benefit future generations. And that's a relentless quest. You know, we, we try to understand everything we're invested in, but there's always more to learn and there's always ways to get better. 
but that journey is a worthwhile journey. So the journey kind of for total impact to actually try to have as much positive impact as you can with your life and resources is an unending one and is a productive and joyful one and a challenging one. And we encourage more and more families, regardless of the economic situation, to participate in that. It's been exciting how much innovations there have been on this on the fintech side. So, so more Americans can choose to not invest in oil and gas if they don't want to as part of their retirement portfolios. Like that, that's happening. So this idea of just trying to bring increasing amounts of integrity to what we do is great. We'll never get there. You know, and we, we don't want to be self-flagellating all the time of how everything we're doing wrong, but we, we do want to be humble that there's always more we can do. So part of our frustration is a little bit also with like, say a philanthropic foundation that sees their mission as giving money away when in fact, 95% of their assets are in an endowment. So how are they managing that endowment to solve the problems they think are important or, or to at least not create more problems? This question of like total impact is something, you know, we're trying to achieve hundred percent impact across everything we're doing is an unending, but very worthwhile quest. And we try to work with other families and doing it together. So, you know, we co-founded something called the impact, which is a network of families with significant resources that are trying to do more impact investing, you know, around the world and not just the United States. And, and it's been and gratifying to know that that this is a lot of what especially the next generation is very interested in that there there's a both and mentality that you you can invest with high standards and in fact we need to invest with high standards to solve our biggest problems it seems like of the the really well-meaning and civically engaged really wealthy people some have this notion that you seem to have about investing responsibly, growing that money, making it work for the benefit of society. And some have a notion of, you know, give it all away or give all but a small amount of it away because there's so much that uh, it's not necessary to take care of future generations. You know, you can do it on 5% of it or whatever. How do you think about those two options or where are you on that? Look, you know, people make their own choices and, and I'm not going to criticize people too much for, for the individual choices they make so to be empathetic with their circumstances. I think it is important to note in a country, we still do not have guaranteed healthcare, housing, or education in this country. If you have the chance to secure that for, for your children or their children's children, there is a natural instinct to want to ensure you have that level of security, you know, especially in this country. Now, Arguably, in many cases, we might have resources that, that are beyond that. So then there's a question like, are you making more impact doing impact investing with solutions or would you make more impact giving it away? We actually give away substantial resources, you know, more than most rich people every year. So we feel we're doing a better job than average, but there is sort of a, a weighing of impact. It's, but it's not as simple as if we're either giving it away or keeping it, because when we're investing money in companies that are solving major problems in renewable energy, that is part of the solution for future generations. And if we didn't show up to provide that capital to accelerate the development of these solutions, it may take longer to solve climate change. Giving money away, which again, we, we do a lot of, is very tricky and doing it well is challenging too. So there is an aspect to figuring out what's the right balance. And of course, the resources we have to give away are partly because of our investments too. So they all kind of relate and interplay to each other. So always happy to engage in that conversation and always have to be challenged on why not 
give more away versus invest more in impact investing. That's an, that's an ongoing one. What you're doing seems like, seems very active. It seems rewarding. It seems like it would be, you know, a fulfilling way to spend your days. Is it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, my personality is more entrepreneurial, creative, you know, thinking of new ideas for things, wanting to meet people who have new ideas for things. So the benefit of knowing where I'm going to sleep at night and having enough resources to feed myself means I have a little more liberty to take more risks with developing ideas or listening to a broader range of people. Um, so I get to spend a lot of my time listening to people and accelerating change. So that's pretty exciting. There is an obligation that comes, I think, with a reasonable degree of financial security to take more risks for social change. So, you know, whether it's taking a, a risk early on on an idea like Act Blue, or whether it's challenging political leaders to do things like stop taking money from foreign investors, <laughs> you know, that's, I think that's important too. So, you know, if you have that kind of political access and influence, you should use it to create change. And, and that's what interests me the most. I know that with my wife, we don't always agree on spending. We don't always agree on investment. How do you stay aligned with yours? Well, it does, it does help to start from a, a common ground that, that we do think we should be using all our resources to create change. And, and we believe that philanthropy and investing and policy and politics are critical. I think we'd have a lot more fights if we thought that we were doing enough just by investing properly and having a philanthropic program. Uh, Liesl and I both understand the importance of policy and, and setting the rules for the economy and setting rules for democracy. And if we weren't involved in policy and politics, we'd be not doing our jobs to, to create a better future for our kids. You know, uh, climate can't change can't just be solved with more grant making or better investing. It has to be solved with, with better policy. So that foundation is great. You know, we do have our disagreements about things and that's a great reason to have lunch together. So we try to have, you know, business lunches where we exchange ideas and, and, uh, and hash it out and uh, agree to disagree sometimes. And it keeps it interesting. Yeah. Is there a question I failed to ask that I should have? What's on my mind or what I'm most worried about? I think what, what keeps me up right now is we are at this moment where a good portion of the folks who read the newspapers and who are concerned about democracy are very engaged, but they might go home and might not double down. We are, we're kind of in a unique window with Trump leaving office and having had such a close election where there's enough anxiety, people might be interested in strengthening democracy, or they might feel, oh, we, 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 just, we just escaped Trump, we're going to go home. But now is actually the time. So my biggest concern is people really should be reaching out to friends and family and others and challenging those communities. What more are you going to do to strengthen democracy? Like our foundation is not strong enough. And, and unless we repair that foundation and double down on those efforts, we continue to risk you know, sliding into anti-democratic regimes that end up with a lot more people dying from pollution, from police brutality, from pandemics. Democracy is a life or death thing. And it's too often seen as a hobby or a, or a source of entertainment and not as a source of solutions. It's not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. No. And it uh, should not be seen as a, a nice little extracurricular activity. Uh, democracy requires every citizen to, to step up and fully participate for it to really work well. And too often it's seen as a, by especially 
you know, very wealthy people as a kind of a plaything or something they use to lobby on their behalf of their interests in their companies in a way that does not serve the long-term interests of the country. So I think there's a, a lot of work to do to ensure we strengthen democracy right now. So that's going to require focus, especially in the next six months to, to do that work and not wait till the next election. Well, I'm really happy to hear that you want to double down and that you want other people to it. I agree with that. I think we have dodged some bullets, but there's a lot, a lot that's a mess and we, we better work on it. Yeah. There, I mean, there's some kind of groups of philanthropists that are getting together with a more of an attitude of we need to invest in democracy every year. You know, I worked with Nick Penniman and wrote an article about how, you know, United States, we need to have 1% for democracy and at least 1% of philanthropic giving should be focused on reforming democracy. You know, we do far, far higher than that, you know, closer to 50%. But uh, we've been connecting with other other folks about inspiring them to do more. There is a group called One for Democracy that is trying to win commitments from more philanthropists to, to do more for democracy. And I think, you know, if, if you know people with unusual resources, they should be doing that. And if you know people with everyday resources, they should be doing that. You know, One for Democracy is not too high an ask. Uh, arguably, it should be much higher. I think so. I, I did have Nick as a guest on the show. I think he's doing good work. It's been really been an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, just uh, thanks so much. I appreciate the conversation today. I do too. That was Ian Simmons. Ian is at bluehaveninitiative.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.